Welcome to America now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. Another Churchill quote. We have a Churchill quote at the top of the show, as you, of course, know from listening to it. But this is not the end. It's not even the beginning of the end, but perhaps it is the the end of the of the beginning of repeal and replace of Obamacare. Um, the replacement of President Obama's signature uh, domestic law, domestic achievement uh, with something else. Although, and we will get into many of the details today on the show, my friends, uh, there's some fair question to be asked as to whether or not it even counts as a repeal. Um, I think that is one thing to keep in mind. It leaves intact some aspects of Obamacare. So it is not Obamacare no longer exists. It's just Obamacare is being changed and changed in some uh, in some powerful ways, I, I think. Um, but this also is not a done deal. I, I'm a big believer in life that you should... Avoid celebrating too early. Uh, This is a a mantra that I live by because you want to get excited about an accomplishment, an achievement, whether it's yours or those around you, but you always wait till it's done. This is just like in show business. All of my my peers that work in what we'd roughly call media uh, won't talk about a contract until it's signed. You know, even when the offer is made, you might be offered a job, but until you have an actionable, legally binding contract with the signatures of all necessary parties on it. You can't really go out and pound a bunch of margaritas or drink some champagne or whatever it is. If you're me, have some uh, gluten-free chicken tenders with some form of of aioli and perhaps a piece of dark chocolate, although not all together because that would be kind of gross or amazing, depending on how you look at it. But you don't want to celebrate too early. And with this, I'm a little concerned that the celebration is outstripping the reality of, of where we are on all of this. Um, President Trump is saying that this is a repeal and replace of Obamacare. And this is, make no mistake, this is a repeal and a replace of Obamacare. Make no mistake about it. Uh, I mean, technically, we're going to fact check that one. Um, I'm not sure we could call it a, 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 a true repeal. Now, they are, they're calling it a repeal, so sure, I, I get that. But they're keeping parts of it. So let, let, let me give you the, before I get into the what this means and what this means for you and for me, that's, that's what I really care about. Will this make our lives easier? Will it make health care more accessible? Will we be in a better position uh, to get the care that we want for ourselves, for our families, or does it make it? 
make it more difficult. That's what this is really all about. Unlike some other areas of policy that are much more a function of someone identifying with what they vote for or identifying with what they support among friends and peers and in their own minds, this really uh, matters. This matters to all of us. This isn't just a theoretical, right? This isn't sitting This isn't sitting around having a long and intense discussion over, shall the import-export bank live or die, my friends? Answer me that question. I, you know, we, we could talk about that, but I don't think the import-export bank... And of course, right now there are some, there are some uh, fiscal conservatives and some anti-cronyist conservatives like, Buck, it's terrible. Don't, don't minimize the evils of the import-export bank. But... You know what I'm saying. Healthcare matters to all of us. So, so here's what happened. Uh, in case you haven't gotten the chance yet, and I am very blessed to have your company for three hours a day or however much of that time you can give me. In case you haven't had the chance yet to see what the House bill contains, I want to bring you up to speed on it. And then we'll talk about where this is all going. And then we got a bunch of other stuff to discuss as well, uh, including this executive order on religious freedom that Trump signed. Cornell University is offering a Trump bashing 101 class. Oh, that'll be worth talking about. Delta Airlines had a little bit of a uh, tense situation that, of course, was videoed. And got some other stories I want to hit on as well. But healthcare is the huge, the huge item of the day. So we're going to take some some time to get into the, the details of this and everything else. So here's what. And before I even tell you the details, just to put this in the proper context, let's all understand that this has to go through the Senate and has to be signed by the president. Now, I think the president will sign anything that the Republicans put in front of him, understandably. Uh, but this is not going to survive the Senate, I believe, as it is. I don't think I, don't, I haven't read anybody today who believes it'll survive uh, passage through the Senate without some considerable changes. So here's what happened today. Uh, you had 217 members of Congress in the House, uh, well, same, you know what I'm saying, voted uh, for this thing, um, and 213 voted against it. And of that 213 who voted against it, you had 193 House Democrats and 20 Republican members. 20 Republicans were like, nope, not going to do it. Uh, those are going to be Republicans, of course, who are in vulnerable districts and are worried about the midterms primarily. Um, that's that's who those 20 Republicans are. And Democrats, you'll notice, not a single, not a single person crossing party lines to the Democrats on this one. Say what you will about them, but their, uh, their Stalinist passion to move as one unit all locked together without anyone being even the least bit willing to break ranks or speak out of turn or defect from the party line it's it's a powerful thing they've got going on the democrats statism is a a powerful philosophy it's destructive but it, it works at least it's an ethos um re- okay so here's what's in the actual bill uh that's remember it hasn't hasn't been passed by uh the senate yet and it hasn't been signed by the president so there's still we shouldn't be we're not dancing in the end zone here as I said about early celebration, we don't want to get tackled at the one yard line. So we're, there is no there is no touchdown yet. And we need to make sure that we keep our eye on this thing. OK, so the main parts of it are you got a revamped insurance uh, tax credit. So it changes the way 
that you get money to buy health insurance. That's the simple way of getting it. There's, there's some complexity about how it scales, how much money you have to make before you no longer get any of the tax credits. Uh, but you now will get a tax credit based on your earnings. And um, it'll be indexed also to a person's age. So it's going to the government's going to help you buy insurance via the via the tax system. That's the that's the one of the main changes here. And you don't have an individual mandate anymore. Individual mandate has changed, but there'll be a penalty in place. By the way, this there's some similarities here. A lot of similarities to what was considered a very bad bill before. And um, because part of my mission here is to keep it real in the Freedom Hut, uh, I have to tell you this is this is not a full repeal. It's not. So I understand that it's being sold as that, and a lot of Republicans are excited about it, but it is just frankly not a full repeal. Okay, all right. Well, but if it makes things better, I'll take better right now. I will take forward movement. I'm not going to let perfection be the enemy of the good. Um, so the revamped insurance tax credit thing, that that makes some sense. I see how they're doing that. Okay. You also have no more individual mandates, so there'll be a continuous coverage requirement um that's an important part of all of this uh that means that if you don't have uh, if you if you don't have uh, coverage for a period of time when you re-enter the health insurance market uh, the company can charge you a 30 percent a 30 percent rise in premiums over, over the course of one year so it penalizes you for not having insurance but it does not um it, it does not have a penalty that you pay to the government. Now, that's a change. Uh, the the big issue, and this is what was the focus of the last couple of days. By the way, we've got some time we'll devote later in the show to what exactly is the truth of pre-existing conditions. I know some of you that listened to the show yesterday were like, fuck, you're putting too much emphasis on this. And I, I tried to mention, I didn't spend enough time on this, that I understand that pre-existing conditions is just one small segment of the overall healthcare market. But it has emotional resonance and it allows the Democrats to control the debate. So we have to pay attention to it, right? Because if it's only even a few hundred thousand people that have pre-existing conditions that would be negatively affected and booted out of health insurance markets entirely as a result of a Republican bill, that's a ma- not only is that a, a moral failing, it's a massive political liability. Right? You, you can't have people that are undergoing cancer treatment uh, all of a sudden unable to get any form of insurance because of a change that the Republicans have made. To, that that is, that is very bad. That would be a very big mistake. So uh, that's, But I'll, I'll talk to you more about the realities of it later because it is true that pre-existing conditions got so much attention this week when in reality it's a small segment of the market. Mo- most, uh, most employer-provided plans um, don't allow for anyone to be excluded because of pre-existing conditions. So it was a an inflated, in terms of the numbers, an inflated concern earlier in the week. Um, it also should be noted that we are, when we're talking about Obamacare and, and all these different uh, regulations that it enacted and, and even some of the taxes and everything else, the main thrust of Obamacare, the people that were hurt by this are in the individual market which is a, a small subset of the overall healthcare market. Most people get insurance from their employers still. So, yeah, now, it, you, you don't want to be the politician in charge of telling the 15 to 20 or 30 million Americans who are in the individual market, sorry, and we're not too worried about you because there's 270 or so million other people in the country we got to worry about. 
I understand all that, but this all this fighting right now or so far has largely been about the effects of health of health insurance regulation on the individual market, right? It, it really has. Those of you who have employer plans are like, yeah, I mean, may, maybe you know, costs have gone up. I'm not saying there's no impact, but it's not nearly as dramatic as if you're on the individual market and you've had three plans canceled and your insurance stinks and the government's making you buy it. Okay, so uh, part of the part of this uh, f- fight has been that states now will be in a position to say we don't want the Obamacare minimum requirements to apply to our state. We will develop our own set of requirements for plans, uh, healthcare plans in the state. And there, they, this is where the pre-existing conditions issue came up. Um, so the House GOP has allocated uh, $138 billion over the next decade. The high, this is for the high-risk pools. So they said, okay, if you're, if you're going to set up your own state-by-state state or allow for a state exemption, meaning an exemption from Obamacare requirements, and then you can set up your own um, minimum uh, essential benefits or essential benefits, if you're going to do that, uh, you have to have protections in place for those with pre-existing conditions. And so they set aside this big pool of money. Is the pool of money big enough? Will it be sufficient? Well, we'll get into more of that later. Uh, it's changed the way it would change Medicaid. This is not new. This was in the original version of this bill. As as I'm seeing this, I'm I'm having a little bit of deja vu because, yeah, the Medicaid, uh, Medicaid is going to be uh, now left up to the states much more much more so the best parts of this health care bill um, are the parts of it that allow greater flexibility in states to deliver health care or to deal in the in the health insurance market for the delivery of health care to residents of that state now that doesn't mean there won't be problems and there won't be shortcomings and when we get into the funding of this there'll be all kinds of issues but also uh Okay, so that's I'm trying to make sure I get I get all the key points here. Uh, so there's some regulations they'll be able to get out of states will be able to get out of some of the regulations. And um, you also will be able to charge different amounts to different people. Right. This is this is one of the big sticking points before. I just realized I've, I've run into the next one. I haven't even given you my sense of the political importance of all this. But I mean, you know, it's a big deal. I don't need to tell you stuff that you already know. And you know that this, the optics of this certainly look really good for the Republicans right now. Um, they're not, it's not great because this isn't a true repeal. And now we're going to be told, I think, more and more that a repeal was never really possible. And a lot of us should scratch our heads and say, that's funny because there were a lot of repeal votes when you guys didn't have the majority in Congress. So that was truly all just for show. Um, But this is uh, progress for the Republicans, and this, I think, will make some parts of this healthcare system better. But this is not a home run. And in fact, we have, I'm using a lot of sports analogies today. I know, I got to mix it up. This is not uh, a done deal. And we got to spend a little more time on what's really in this and what this means, what the Democrats are going to do, what this could mean for the midterm elections. I've got a lot to say on this, my friends. I've been spent the whole day reading on it. I should probably get a social life, but instead I read about healthcare all day. Uh, 844-900-2825. I also want to hear from all you out there. What do you think about the Republicans in the House pushing through this healthcare bill? Big thumbs up, kind of eh, or maybe a thumbs down. You tell me. I'll be right back. 
Democrats in the House chanting, na-na-na-na, hey-hey-hey, goodbye. Suggesting that because Republicans have, in fact, done something on health care, they will all lose in the midterms. Let me just first say the very, uh, <laughs> it's pretty obvious to me at least, um, it would be a lot worse if they didn't do anything. I don't know how any I don't know how any Republican up for re-election in the midterms uh, would be able to defend. Well, they would all, of course, just blame everybody. I know what they would do. They'd blame everybody else, and they were they were stalwart hero of the conservative movement. And yeah, we get it. But it would be much harder for Republicans to uh, keep seats if their record on health care, after all the repeal and replace votes, after everything we were promised, was just complete and utter inaction. That would be. That would be worse. Uh, so maybe what they've done here exposes them and creates some uh, political vulnerabilities. But it, <laughs> what, what's the alternative? Now, I, I, I suppose it's worth uh, taking a moment to say that we can't even really tell how effective this will be or how much we should be excited about what's happened here until it gets through the Senate, because the Senate may change some of this. Um, I, I believe there's, for example, a, I think there's a, a funding, uh, a, a defunding of Planned Parenthood for a period of, of time. Um, so there's some things in here that's going to get, they're going to get tense in the Senate, to be sure. And it's not going to be simple for the Senate to take up this House bill and just push it through and everyone gets to be happy and it all goes forward. And, you know, that's, that's, that is not, I think what is uh, likely to to be the the end end state here. Um, Democrats, of course, are going to try to scare everybody with this. Uh, you've got Nancy Pelosi trying to scare Republicans. They have this vote tattooed on them. This is a scar they will carry. So it isn't. It's their vote. It's not the Senate vote. It's their vote they are taking. So that is really a poor choice. Cowardly choice, I might add. Why would they vote for it if they don't think it's worthy of support because the Senate won't change it? Uh, from what I hear the Republican senators saying, they don't have any interest in passing this bill as is. So it, it's going to get changed around. Uh, that That's why it's important to know what's in it, and that's why we're talking about it. And look, they didn't get a congressional budget office. They didn't get a CBO score. This was done very much behind closed doors. There wasn't their review period for the public that we have been told in the past would happen with major legislation. Uh, there's there's some stuff going on here, everybody. I mean, I, I can't sit here and pretend that this is the way this was all supposed to happen. There's some yeah, there's some aspects of this that are, are not so great, and some of that's certainly on Paul Ryan and, and Republican leadership, but I think it also is, is fair to look at this and just have a wait-and-see attitude about what this is going to look like in the end. Um, 844-900-2825. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. Here's what The Hill reported uh, just a few hours ago. Several Republican senators sent a warning shot to the House after its passage of an Obamacare repeal and replace bill Thursday, indicating it won't be easy to get the measure through the upper chamber. Uh, Senator Heller, one of the most vulnerable GOP senators up for re-election in 2018, said he won't or he wouldn't support the House's bull, uh, bill in its current form. 
We cannot pull the rug out from under states like Nevada, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and he goes on there for a while. Senate leadership has acknowledged the legislation will need to change in the chamber in order to get enough of its members on board. Likely changes could focus on Medicaid and adding increased financial assistance in the form of tax credits to help low-income Americans. So, yeah. Now, yeah, it's so the, the Senate can take up its own version of what's already out there in the House. They're not going to. It's not going to be from scratch, right? We're not going to have a, a completely new version of of all of this. Uh, but they can they can do a a different bill and then it can go into a conference committee and they'll work out the differences there. Um, but GOP senators are saying that this is going to be a no go. Fifty two forty eight is the breakdown here. So if they lose two votes, um, if they or they can only afford to lose two votes, rather, because of course, vice president can come in and break the tie. Uh so that's where this is. Maybe, you know, the Senate, if this is if this bill in the House is dead on arrival in the Senate, well, that's that's going to be interesting. And if the Senate does its own thing, takes what the, they're going to take, what the House has passed, I assume, and change some parts of it and, and view that as a, you know, as, as, as the Senate version. And then they can go into conference committee and uh, figure out where they meet in the middle, I suppose. We'll have to see. Uh, let's take John in Mississippi. Good to hear from you, sir. Hey, Buck. Glad to talk to you again. I want to tell you something, How give you some feedback from out here in the hinterland. Uh, most of us Americans do not have the time or the desire to look deeply into important issues like health care. And I have found you to be trustworthy on a scale of 1 to 10, if like 0 is the least trustworthy and 10 is the most trustworthy. Uh, Nancy Pelosi would be like a three. Maxine Waters would be like a two. Donald Trump would be way up there at the top near eight. And uh, I would rate you as nine and a half. And I'm going to listen to you on these issues that I don't have time or the desire to check out, like health care, and say I appreciate the time and effort that you have put into this. And I'm going to listen to you and believe what you tell me on this because I've checked you out on other issues and you're very trustworthy, very diligent. Thank you very much, sir. I try. I mean, I, I occasionally make mistakes or I get something wrong, but I can promise you this. I do I do as much research as anybody else who goes on the air for three hours, full stop. Uh, as much of my time is spent getting ready for it as anyone else that's out there. And uh, whenever I know that I'm wrong on something, I come back and correct it. So... But thank you. That's why you only get a nine and a half. I'm definitely not perfect, but I, I try very hard. And I know, I mean, this is why uh, I, I'm so thankful that I have uh, the, the folks out there, Team Buck, as I affectionately call them, uh, listening in. Because I, you know, if you if you give me three hours, you'll know more than 95 percent of the people walking around on the street, wherever you are, or you know, driving by you on the road. Uh, if, if you give me an hour, I think you'll be like at like 75 or 80 percent, you know, so. Thank you very much, John, for uh, for calling in. I appreciate it. Shield time, man. Um, Evelyn in North Carolina, WPTI. Good to have you, Evelyn. Yes. Hi, Buck. Thank you for having me on. I am so frustrated about two things, Buck. One is this health care plan because we know it's not going to get through the Senate, and the Democrats have already said they're not going to pass anything. They're not doing anything to get President Trump's, Trump's agenda through. They want to see him fail. And I don't know how we can uh, go beyond them to, to do this. We're never going to get our country 
on the right path, as long as these Democrats are so stubborn. And as far as the Republicans who are not supporting President Trump, let me tell them something. We reelected and elected them because they said they would get rid of Obamacare. And now they're not doing it. Well, you know what? They're not getting my vote. I wish that I had a list of all those Republicans so I could put it on Facebook and let people know what they're doing to this country. Second thing that's aggravating me is um, the uh, way that a lot of the conservative talk shows and uh, our right of conservative free speech is being blocked and taken away. Isn't that a violation of our constitutional rights? And could that be brought to the Supreme Court? I'd like to know that. Uh, what do you mean conservative shows are being blocked and taken away? I, I don't I need some specifics on that. Like, like where or who? Okay. Recently, President, uh, over the weekend, I believe, President Trump wanted to have some airs, ads on the network about his accomplishments the first hundred days. CNN, CBS, and a lot of the other liberal news channels have refused to run those ads. That's one thing. Second, they're also trying to um, block uh, shows like Sean Hannity and the Fox Network Network, and uh, they're actually recording everything said on these shows, including Rush Limbaugh. And um, and they're looking. They're looking to create a boycott around it. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I think the first thing you're talking about, Evelyn, refers to uh, they, they wanted to run an ad on CNN's air, but it had a, a banner that said fake news or something in it, right? So that there, there's, uh, you know, I don't know this area specifically of 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 the law and regulation all that well, but uh, channels do have some leeway in what kind of advertisements they will take. Um, so it's it's not. A totally, a totally free and fair game in that respect. And for you know, for example, I, I would imagine that CBS News doesn't have to take an ad that in the breaks as CBS News is is fake news and is and is crap, right? So that that's uh, they are fake news. You know, <laughs> thanks. Yeah, yeah, you get no argument from me. I, I hear you, but so that's on the uh, that's on on that aspect of it, and then on the boycotts. Yeah, boycotts are a common tactic for the progressive left to silence speech that they don't like. Uh, you know, the, the Democrat Party's uh, attack dog uh, outfits, uh, the, the different organizations. What's that? Uh, Media Matters, and, and there's many others. And they try to highlight things, take them out of context, and then get people to rally around them to really create economic pain for conservative hosts and shows. That's not a, you know, there. it's a First Amendment issue when it comes to government action. The thing about boycotts is that you're using your First Amendment rights to push for private action, private economic action, punitive action against somebody. And so you're allowed to do that. But I am, I am very opposed to boycotts, except in extreme circumstances. I think that boycotts are yeah. set a bad precedent. And with conservatives, they've been trying to do it forever. Um, and this is one of my, and thank you, Evelyn, for calling in. Uh, appreciate it. Shield tie. Uh, the the uh, problem that I've had recently, or the, one of the concerns, I should say, I've had about 
what's gone on uh, over at Fox with a, with a few of the well with with the biggest host. Is that it's a it's been a dream, regardless of the veracity of the claims and all that with O'Reilly, and, and I don't I don't know, and uh, you know that's not not something that I'm referring to in, in this statement, but just that the left was able to get him in the end um, was I'm not saying he didn't give them stuff to work with, but that they were able to get him. It was nice in conservative media for a while. It was nice to be in a place where you figured, well, at, at least if if enough of the people, if the audience is with you. They can't just create corporate pressure and get you ousted from your job. And you could point to O'Reilly and you could point to Limbaugh and you could point to some of the, uh, you know, the, the, the biggest trees in the conservative forest. They, they got O'Reilly and uh, they've they've been going after Rush and others for a long, for a long time. And they're not going to stop. Uh, but Evelyn, it was great to talk to you. Ken, in uh, we got another caller from Mississippi. Ken, good to talk to you, sir. Hey, Buck. Hey, Buck. How you doing? Good. Thank you for coming. I, uh, yeah. Uh, I, 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 I'm not absolutely positive about this, but I've, I've heard this before, and I think I remember this when they passed the Obamacare bill, because they did it as a reconciliation bill. When the House pushed passed it and pushed it over to the Senate, they could not change it at all, or it would require the 60... I mean, you know, it would... It was it would fall under the filibuster rules because it only stayed a reconciliation bill as long as they passed it as is. Now I may be wrong about that, and I'd like you to check that out somehow if you could. Uh, absolutely, sir. We 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 will look into that to to take a look. Yeah, I don't think the Senate can mess with it. I, I really don't. Well, the Senate can do uh, its own version of the the Senate can do its own version of of a yeah, the Senate can can do its own version of a bill, and then the House can vote on that. Bill. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, you know, they the, can push it back to the house. Yeah, I yeah. see what you're saying. Yeah, it you know, and, and and then it gets bill. into well, how how different you know how different does it have to be for it really to be a different bill? You know, if it just starts in the Senate, they change a couple things. They say, you know, this isn't the American Health Care Act. This is the like Great American Health Care Act or something. I don't know. You yeah, know. yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I got you. Yeah, yeah so, that makes sense. Yeah, so that's I mean that's why, but but ultimately you got to have enough GOP senators. Uh, who will go forward with it? And and it's not great. I mean, I'm going to get into some more of the specifics later, but it's not the the best health care bill out there. Uh, Ken, thank you for calling in, man. Shields, I appreciate it. Um, the here here's a here's a here's a reality of what we've seen with this health care, the whole health care fight, stretching back to Obamacare and going to going until now. One is that uh, because health care is so complicated. The ability to distill it down into uh, cogent, easily digestible propaganda points, little talking points, is very powerful in this whole debate. So what that's why the pre-existing conditions, parents staying under parents insurance until they're 26, and then the insurance is we're going to insure everybody and we're going to do all of those things that you've heard about Obamacare that you heard about Obamacare were to create the uh, political momentum and really the top cover to push through a whole bunch of other stuff that very few people have the time to even learn about or know about. And in fact, Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, figures out some of it as it goes along. HHS was given under Kath, uh, Kathleen Sebelius before, um, and what is it, Tom Price now? Uh, HHS was given a lot of flexibility, and by flexibility we mean discretion in different aspects of how Obamacare would be applied 
So that what that means is that there's a lot that goes on here that we don't even really know what it is until it's in place and certain decisions are made within the government bureaucracy. Part of the issue I have with this American Health Care Act that the Republicans have put forward is that it still leaves in place that basic decision-making architecture for the government. So the government is uh, going to be making, well, for one, the government's deciding that there's going to be these high-risk pools and that everyone's going to be insured. And uh, and and I think that's politically and, and ethically uh, a good move. Although it's going to be much, I can tell you this, it'll be much more expensive than they think it will be right now. Whatever the number is right now, it's going to be, it's going to be a lot more than that. Uh, that much you can, and this is also why the Congressional Budget Office scoring, which is not, people make a big deal about that depending on which side of the aisle they're on and what's going on. But uh, the, the CBO score, we don't have that. So this is something to keep in mind. It's going to be much more expensive than they say it is right now. Um, and they also put states in charge of what your plan has to cover, but, or they allow states rather the ability to step away from Obamacare requirements and decide what a state will cover. But that's still, that's still not the free markets. What I'm trying to get out of here. This isn't like, okay, I want coverage for severe illness. Um, I want coverage that will kick in at, you know, after $15,000 of my own spending, but real, but a real $15,000, not what they do right now where they say it's 5,000, but they discount like 80% of every dollar you spend at the doctor or doing, you know, taking care of yourself so that, you know, your deductible is 5,000, but in reality, you're going to spend 15,000 before you hit your deductible. There are all these games the insurance companies play. Um, but if it, let's say it's a real, t- or a real 10,000, a real 5,000, I mean, 15,000 is really high, but some of the Obamacare plans have a $15,000 deductible for, for maximum benefits at least. Um, but let's say it's, yeah, let's say it's $5,000 deductible. And above that, you have eighty uh, percent coverage for, you know, uh, major major illness of any kind. Y- you may not be able to get that plan, even in a state that opts out of Obamacare. If, if you live in, I, I don't know, if you live in Florida, and Florida says, "Well, we're going to do it our own way," and here's what has to be covered. Well, then that has to be offered in all the plans. So you're still not at a, a healthcare a la carte. I'm going to make my own decisions and the health and, and the insurance company can draw up any contract for me that it wants. That's not what you've got. You've just got states in charge instead of a one size fits all policy of the federal government. That's a little better, I think, but it's not great and it's not actually free market. But uh, what we're seeing here, I think, is a slow recognition that Republicans were telling us for a long time this was all going to be over with Obamacare was done. And really what they are doing is changing Obamacare in substantial ways, but other parts of it are sticking around. Uh, we will hit a quick break here, team. 844-900-2825 on the phones. Get into a bit more of the politics of this. And I've got a lot more for you in terms of topics, too. So stay with me. Today was a big day, but it is just one step in this process, an important step. We still have a lot of work to do to get this signed into law. And I know that our friends over in the Senate are eager to get to work. (laughs) They are. We're going to see that work through. You know why we're going to see this work through? Because the issues are just too important. We have to repeal this law and put in place a real, vibrant marketplace with competition and lower premiums for families. That's what the American Health Care Act is all about. It makes health care more affordable. It takes care of our most vulnerable. And it shifts 
power from Washington back to the states and most importantly, back to you, the patient. Like I said, we've got a lot of work to do. Yeah. We will but see. one thing is now clear. Well, here, here, can I tell you all a dirty little secret? Um, everyone thinks they want a free market in healthcare, but we actually, most of us, kind of want someone else to pay for a lot of our health care. It's just the truth. I, me included. I'm, I'm used to like, hey, $20 copay. You know, here you go. Uh, that's not that's not going to work for everyone. And uh, that's not the way that it is going to shake out, I think, with this plan. Uh, Carl in Alabama, good to have you, sir. Hey, thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to touch on a couple of issues. Uh, I used to work um, in a field that dealt with emergency response. Um, and uh, I just wanted to say that when the health care, uh, Obamacare, all that first started, I think the major problem that they were trying to address was rising costs of health care. But I don't think they really addressed this. They were really focused on everyday people. They were focused on the rising costs for things like indigent care. There were people that went to the hospital three to four times a week to the emergency room, which is the most expensive place to get health care, and had no insurance whatsoever. And the government had for years agreed to pay a third, uh, about a third of that cost to hospitals for indigent care. Well, those costs were spiraling out of control, and you can't uh, eternally pay for one-third of everyone's health care to go in the most expensive route to the hospital and to the most expensive place for health care. So part of one of the things it was meant to address was getting people under a doctor so that they're not going lights and sirens to the emergency room every time they, they have a flare-up or whatever medical issue they have without any insurance because the government paid a third of the cost for that, okay? I hear you, Carl. Um, anything else you want to throw in? Because otherwise we're going to go to a break in about five seconds, but uh, we can bring you on the next hour if you need to. Oh, we'll be so right I back. All right. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Carl. We'll be right back. He spreads freedom because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back. Got our friend Vince Colonese on the line. He is the Daily Caller's editor-in-chief. Vince, good to have you, sir. It's great to be here. Thanks, Buck. So I've gone over some of the details of what's in the bill the House has passed. Uh, can you bring us up to speed on what now? What next? Well, that's a, well it, that is the million-dollar question. And if we are to be sort of, I don't know, cynical news consumers, which we are, which is to look at this and be kind of realist about what we're dealing with today, you've got to wonder why the White House puts so much theatrics and the, and, the, and the Republicans in Congress, for that matter, into the passage of a bill simply through the House, right? So you get a, you get a health care repeal bill, which, of course, is momentous on its own, and Republicans running over to the White House, in fact, taking a giant bus over to a very public show, um, and then standing behind the president and celebrating this. Clearly, it's a big step that they've been waiting to take for a while, but they haven't gotten the ball across the finish line. They need the Senate to do this. And what we're hearing now is that the Senate has no intention of taking up the House pass bill. Their intention is to pass their own bill. And um, it's not quite clear that this is going to really get gain much more steam. Do we know? know so, so there must be some Senate Republicans who are not okay with this. Do we know why? Well, you mean with the current, the House version? Yes. Well, you know, I think a lot of it is, I think a, there's been a lot of criticism of the fact that it was rushed, that even members, even Republican members who passed it, 
weren't precisely sure that DPLs are not reading it. There were some reports of that. And also that the CBO hadn't scored it, which is necessary if you're going to pass a bill for reconciliation, because the Senate parliamentarian has to know how the bill was scored by the CBO in order to judge whether or not it actually qualifies as simple budgetary adjustment or if this is something else. This is legislation required of a more traditional process. Um, so, you know, I think there's a whole host of reasons why the Senate is holding its nose right now. Um, but I think here's what the big takeaway from today was, ultimately. It's proof for the president and proof for Speaker Ryan, who desperately needed it, I think, that they are able to get legislation through the House, that that the House of Representatives is not simply a Democratic That, that they're not a big waste of time, basically. With two other small Republican parties serving in the, in the House. It's actually a House that's capable of passing legislation through the Republican Party's actions, which we didn't see earlier this week with the budget, by the way, which was passed majority Democrats, not Republicans. So now you've got a success for Paul Ryan to point to and for the president to point to. And by the way, now they can move on to other legislative priorities, including tax reform, which is really what they want to get to. But what do we uh, what do we think if the Senate Republicans have their own version of this? Do we have any sense of how it will be different? I don't. Not right now. I'm sure there are smarter people on health policy that have a better sense of it. But, um, you know, I, I think, Buck, you know, you and I look at this and a lot of people, I, try, I think Charles Crownhammer actually assessed it this way when the first time uh, President Trump tried to bring it up, which is once you establish an entitlement of any kind, it's almost impossible to to peel it away. Yeah, the politics and, become toxic, right? The moment you're, who, totally. who wants to be the one that shows up and says, you know, Party's over, no more Doritos, no more beer. Nobody wants to be that guy. Right. I don't want to be that but guy. The question, the question really before our lawmakers now is, do we go back to the sort of the way it was and, and tack in from there? And by the way, I think a lot of conservatives want that, just like literally repeal everything and then let's start making adjustments from there. Or do you try and basically double down on the system we have and make it more cost effective, which is, I think, what most lawmakers are tempted to do. Look, it's not health insurance anymore. It's charity. And we pay a lot of taxes into it, and we pay a lot of high deductibles and high premiums to make that charity work. Um, how can we bring all of those costs down yet continue to make it a charity? That's really the question before so many lawmakers now. It's the reason why President Trump— Wait, expand on that. That's a very interesting idea. How, how is it a charity? It's a charity because the way that insurance works is that you don't bring a burning house to your house insurance company and say, I need insurance for this. Sorry, it's already on fire. It's, it, it, there's no time for us to make sort of a risk gamble. The risk is fully invested in the house already. It's there. So it's the same way with healthcare, which is to say, once you start saying pre-existing conditions should have no bearing on the health insurance industry, it's not an insurance industry anymore. That's right. It's, it's a charity. I've been saying I've been saying this for a couple of months now that we're not really talking about health insurance. We're talking about uh, health care cross subsidies and and, and health care redistribution. For sure. And now instead of redistributing health care around, we're sort of redistributing the misery of health care around. Because, you know, like people who had otherwise good health care prior to the passage of Obamacare uh, have seen not only their premiums rise, but their deductibles have gone up massively. So in both cases, and now they're, you know, and they're losing health plans and they have to find, you know, something that works. They might only have one provider or no providers in their exchange. Essentially, what had been a miserable program for some people is now becoming sort of miserable for everybody. I'm talking to Vince Colonese, who's the Daily Caller's editor-in-chief, thedailycaller.com. Excellent site. You should all go check it out. Uh, you know, Vince, on, on the political side of this also, I, I think that the 
Republicans have missed some opportunities. This isn't a recent criticism. This is a more general long-term criticism. But th- that you have Democrats out there, and as of, as well as their left-wing media enablers who are, as I understand it, literally saying people are going to die because of this. That's become, yes. you know, it, during Romney versus Obama, that presidential race, it was Romney gives people cancer and throws, like, old ladies off of, off of the cliff in the wheelchair. Now we're at... Uh, John Lewis, Elizabeth Warren, and the ACLU today all are just, been, to name a few, all saying that people will die because of this new health care plan. Yeah, that 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 seems a bit that seems a bit extreme to me. Um, but on the other side of this, while you've got de- Democrats saying people will die, and therefore Republicans have blood on their hands, I suppose uh, the, the Republicans have not done a good job of illustrating what what I've tried to do on my show and in the past, which is to bring to, to bring up the people who okay, they're not a they're not a sort of uh, sad human interest story about oh you know I I wasn't. I wasn't sure I'd be able to get into the health insurance market, and now I can, and, and I got really sick. I mean, look, our hearts go out to anybody that's in a situation that's hit by serious illness. No no question about it. But that's a very small percentage of people that have been uh, affected by Obamacare. And I, I, what I don't think the Republicans have done a good job of at all is pointing out that for most people who are affected by Obamacare, it means their old plan, which they liked more, is gone their new plan, which is mandated by Obamacare, is very bad, meaning very small doctor networks, very high deductibles, and very high premiums. And people yeah. have to pay this. They have no choice. Right. And not just the pain that's gone into it, but take advantage, I think, if you're the Republicans, of the populist moment, which is to point out the extent to which big business, specifically the, the, the healthcare industry, benefited massively off this. This was cronyism at its finest. The fact that when Obamacare was passed, the reason why it has all these like minimum health standards of, of, of all like of things that you're like, wait a second, why is that a minimum health standard for the average person? Oh, it's because lobbying. It's because the, it's because all of these interests, lobbyists, were able to stick their hands in the pot and say the mandate that goes into this requires my industry to benefit from it. Everybody from you know like random random industries, the AARP. All sorts of organizations benefited massively off of the passage of Obamacare. And it had nothing to do with bettering people's health. It had everything to do with driving money into the pocketbooks of companies that were trying to influence legislation. And the American public, if they've, if they've ever been more upset about that, uh, I don't know of a time. Because that's the reason the part why Donald Trump was elected president. Yeah, the people that I, I know people, I've spoken to people who, who have Obamacare plans. And all, all they say is, I just try not to get sick because... It's just going to be frustration, and it's going to it's going to cost me a lot of money. And yeah, I guess I'd be thankful if I had Obamacare. If um, you know, if I all of a sudden came down with it with a life threatening illness that could bankrupt me. But for most people who are under who are under Obamacare, it's also well. I hope I don't you know break my leg, uh, you know, rock climbing over the weekend or whatever, because I'm going to have to pay like fifteen grand before I get any benefit from Obamacare. That's a, that's a that's a new car. You have to pay cash for that. So, like, I, I think I think a lot of people who were sort of responsible health insurance purchasers who were taking care of their family, paying into good health insurance, and sort of doing what they should responsibly are looking at this and going, wait a second, I, I, I was responsible my whole life with this, and now you're basically asking me to take on the irresponsible or, you know, any number of any number of things. It just doesn't make sense. And I think those people are very underserved by, by the rhetoric, as you point out, which is that they are never acknowledged. That it's always 
that they're always sort of ethereal. The problems with Obamacare are never well described. Do do you view this as a repeal? I view it as, at this point, unless the Senate proves otherwise, I view this as a ceremonial moment that the Trump administration is hoping to get um, some wind in their sails on. But as far as I know, as far as I know, this thing's not going anywhere else, man. Vince Colonese throwing a little haymaker here. Daily Caller EIC not messing around. It's a ceremonial moment. Paul Paul Ryan, he's going to want to arm wrestle you over that one. He's going to be very, he's going to be very upset. I, I'll be challenged by him. He's, I know he's very into that arm wrestling at P90X. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. We all we all know. We've all seen those Paul Ryan biceps. Yeah. Uh, but uh, on, on to uh, the the issue of taxes. By the way, um, that's not going to get touched for a little while. But where does that stand? I think. I mean, it's got to grow from you know sort of the Cliff Notes version into actual legislation. Uh, I. I think that there is like real energy to try and take it on, but um, again, this, it's really going to take a lot of pushing. Uh, my sense of this is though that the Trump administration is very sincere about the fact that they want to get to tax reform soon, and um, now that again that they sort of have health care done in the House, they can focus in earnest on pushing tax reform. And I think there are a lot of people that really hope they do. How are you feeling about this administration in general right now? I mean, I, I don't I don't even remember, Vince, if you were somebody who was openly uh, pro-Trump or voted for Trump. But as a as a conservative, how do you think they're doing? I would say that the president has learned a lot on the job, which is to say, you know, he's you know, the first attempt at health care passage where they sort of just rolled out a bill without a lot of input and then had to yank it at the last moment. Remember, the president was like, no more talking, we're voting. And then actually. At the end, Paul Ryan and the president ended up having to balk. They pulled the bill because they didn't. They knew they didn't have the votes. And I think that experience has been educational for the president. Um, also, you know, I would say on foreign policy, they've been a lot more impressive to sort of the more hawkish Democrats and Republicans that exist. And by the way, have been able to walk the line and kind of impress the sort of the isolationists, which I don't use in a derogative way at all. But the people who are more interested in seeing the United States. Um, more interested in its own interests first. I think they've sort of walked the line really well on that, which is to say they had two giant bombings. They they not they hit a Moab, uh, dropped a Moab on ISIS, as you know, and then they have this missile attack in Syria. Both of them are sort of low risk, high visibility attacks, and they convey the message that President Trump isn't kidding. He will swing his fist when he wants to, and that sort of sent a message to the world that hey, this is a man of action. And that might actually allow him going into the future to not take much more military action at all, actually, which is to say that he may he may be able to maintain his posture that so many of his supporters enjoyed. Right. Speak, speak softly and carry a big Moab. I got you. Vince Colonese, Daily Caller's editor in chief. Go to DailyCaller.com, everybody. And Vince, sir, always a pleasure. Thanks for calling in. My pleasure. Thanks, bud. We can see a bunch of you lighting up the lines, team. We'll take some calls when we get back, 844-900-2825, and uh, we'll switch on to some other topics, including Facebook hiring people to determine what goes, what stays on Facebook, uh, what violates the terms of service. Uh, This is a very interesting topic uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. And we'll also talk about the executive order on religious freedom that uh, Trump got into today and uh, got some other... Some other very worthwhile stuff, my friends. We will be right back. George in Pennsylvania on the iHeart app. What's up? Well, great show. Thank you, sir. Uh, I've got to say, we've got to get honest, at least to start with this discussion about health care, and we're not so far. 
first of all, we've always had universal health care. Hospitals are required to help people that came in, which is why the hospital waiting rooms are full of uh, patients with colds and kids and all that sort of thing. That's why hot, That's why aspirins cost 15 bucks a piece. They're not special aspirins. The real cost is 0.2 cents a piece for an aspirin or something like that. But we've been paying for all of the people that go there. They get the free aspirin, the free care, and all that sort of thing. You know, so George, I, I just I don't want to interrupt you, but I just want to throw in there that I I had an eye emergency recently. I went to the eye hospital and I went through the process here in New York City of of waiting in line. And, and, and really having an, an eye problem that I needed to get tended to. Uh, and there are a lot of people who are there at the, at the eye hospital, in the emergency section, that from what I could tell were there to get uh, eye exams, like for, for, for prescription glasses. And they go in for diapers and they go in for formula while they're carrying their $15 uh, McDonald's bags. But that's neither here nor there at this point. The thing that I don't see is I don't see the hospitals reducing their costs now that we've got all this great Obamacare that they argued so hard for. The costs in the hospitals are the same. The hospitals, I see local hospitals especially getting gobbled up by bigger and bigger hospitals to the point where it's almost impossible to find an unaffiliated physician that even in what looks like a private practice. Well, George, you know, it was very it was very interesting to me when we saw a number of big hospital conglomerates come out and say that they didn't want anyone tinkering with Obamacare, because I, I think I think a lot of the big hospitals like Obamacare. Absolutely. They're getting money for Obamacare and they're getting money. They're getting an outrageous rates from any of the insurance companies that are surviving and for anyone that's paying on their own for private insurance. They're 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 winning on all 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 rounds, and the indigenous among us, or I'm sorry, the, uh, the the impoverished among us is what I meant to say, uh, that go in there and are treated for free. They no longer have to pick up the cost for us. So now all of that money that had to be rolled back into the community as part of their community service, et cetera, et cetera, is all coming from the government or from uh, whatever the next. You know, what, what do you think? What do you think, George, of, of the uh, I mean, we've been talking about it here on the show. I assume you've been catching some of it. And I'm sure you've been reading about it on your own. What do you think about this House bill? Well, I haven't had a chance to go into it in any great detail, but I'm concerned about the fact that they haven't eliminated Obamacare completely. As your as your previous uh, guest said, once it's there, how do you get rid? You, you, you'll never get rid of an entitlement. You look like the bad guy. We had the chance, however. And I think, I'm afraid, that is, that we blew it by going halfway. Now, maybe we have the will to go back into this again, or at least maybe we have the will on the presidential level to go back in, in on this again. But you, you know how many pansies there, there were that barely voted for this? They don't understand that the people are outraged. You know, when, when, when you've got a 14000 and this is, this is the number I'm using here, a $14,000 deductible, that's catastrophic health care. That's not health care. Well, that's what I've been saying, too, is that people say they have Obamacare. I'm like, well, if you have $500 in the bank and you have a $15,000 health care deductible, guess what? If you get sick, you're going bankrupt. So, you know. And that, cost, and that, and that costs four times as much as it cost eight years ago. Yeah, and, and you're paying you know, hundreds of dollars a month, uh, depending on what your subsidy level is as well. Um, and, of course, it's based on income, not based on overall savings, from what I understand. So... Uh, George, great call, man. Thank you for calling in from Phil, uh, Pennsylvania. I appreciate it. Uh, Barry in Mississippi. 
Good to have you, sir. How you doing? Good. Hello. You there? Okay. Yes, sir. You're on the radio. Look, I'm very conservative, but I'm also a contrarian, and I think we should be celebrating. I'm personally bothered by all the talk shows digging for something to be angry about. What about the individual mandate? Torn, right? I mean, that was the most unconstitutional part about the whole bill, and it's getting zero press. I am personally jumping up and down that that communist action is gone. What about the employer mandate? Uh, Barry, Barry, oh. it's, not, it's not gone yet, though, Barry. It's not a law well, yet. It's, it hasn't been signed yet. Well, well, when it's done, you know, when it's done, we took uh, it. Barry, I'm, I don't want you celebrating too early, Barry. I, I'm seeing the I'm seeing the the high kicking legs. I'm seeing the football in one hand, and I see I see a, a, a free safety who's coming at you from the side here, real fast. We should enjoy it when we can. And we were a whisker away from this not happening with the middle, you know, mushy middle and the uh, and the rigid right not hardly being able to come to terms. We were almost stuck with this unconstitutional mess forever simply because we couldn't agree on the good parts. And you're right, we got a way to go. But you see, Trump, the man wins. <laughs> you know, I didn't believe it until, you know, when he got close to being elected. He just wins. And so I believe we're going to get it through the Senate. And, you know, after nine years of work as a, as a Tea Party leader, Tea Party member, you know, bridge overpass sign waiver, this is for me a day to celebrate. All right. Well, you go. Ahead, you go ahead and celebrate, Barry. You don't let anyone rain on that parade, my man. Good to have you. Thank you. Shields high. Appreciate it. Um, who does? Who? All I do is win, win, win. What? Who is that song? DJ Ka- Kali? Kali. Yeah, DJ Kali. That's like Trump's theme song. So Facebook, which we are all quite familiar with, and becoming. I think more and more familiar with each passing day. At some point, it feels like our, our consciousness may just be uploaded onto Facebook, right? I mean, we'll be like a, a symbiotic online brain, given the current rate of usage and connectivity and how Facebook is so involved in our day-to-day lives, um, which is, uh, uh, by the way, uh, we are the first generation, or I should say we are the first iteration of humanity to have this thing called the internet and to be so involved with it on a day-to-day basis, the power of the information that some of these platforms have, including Facebook, they're not even really aware of its uses and importance yet and what this will mean for us going forward. Like, I'm not a technology uh, guy and I'm not a futurist or any of that, uh, but I mean, I, this is not my area. But I, I do find it fascinating and I think about it a lot. Um, and I also... And I, I remember um, not long ago, a friend of mine uh, saying that he had a conversation with his uh, with his wife about how important it was he felt that they not uh, that they not have their devices, their uh, smartphone, uh, their iPad, their Blackberries a while ago. So I don't know, maybe some of you still might have Blackberries, but this is more common when I remember this conversation happening. And he said that he told her that they should be present. Uh, when they're with each other, I th- I thought that was uh, that really. There are things you know you hear, and it just really stays with you. I'm I'm hoping that many of you will remember my advice to don't celebrate too early. I'm not saying don't celebrate, just don't celebrate too early. It's easy to get caught up in that in any in any number of ways, in any number of things. Um, but also, all with, with social media, and it's incredibly powerful. It's incredibly useful. 
and it's uh, it, it's changing the way we live our lives, and, and this is all kind of platitudinous, and I understand that. You know all this already, but the the notion of being present and not even, you know, for example, I will, I even with very close friends, even with, with family members, I do not like the, oh, I'm going to put my phone on the table while we eat thing. I do not like that um, because I, I, to me, it's just a reminder that we're all connected to this this net all the time, uh, the the interwebs, the internet. Um, so I, I think it's important to be present and be present with the people you're with. And I, I have to, I'm amazed sometimes I see these, by the way, this we're going to talk about the Facebook story in a second, but I'm just giving you my musings on social media right now, um, which by the way, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. If you're listening, please do uh, like the page. It's a great way to communicate with the rest of Team Buck. And you can also send me messages there and I get in there and the rest of the team does as, as often as we can. So for things like media, I mean, Facebook is amazing. It's fantastic. I have uh, much greater connectivity to the people that listen to this show and the people that support what I do and, and want to be a part of what I do, uh, which there are so many ways now to, to do that, um, than, would have been, than would have been possible 10, certainly 15, 20 years ago by leaps and bounds. It's not even close. But, uh, but being present and, and creating that personal, uh, that personal exchange with those around you where you're not letting devices and the incredible benefits of the connectivity we have infringe on the, your, your time with someone is so important. I, I find it now uh, essential. And I, I sometimes go out. Occasionally I go out. I'm like a little social. I'm here in New York City. I used to be very social, I think, would be a fair way to put it when I was in my 20s. Um, that was mostly in D.C. then, mostly at the CIA. I mean, you know, I could tell you, but uh, then I'd have to uh, buy you another martini. Uh, but, yeah, I, I definitely uh, definitely had my had some fun times then. I, I go out much less frequently now. Mostly I just think about uh, writing and radio and, and uh, the <laughs> conservative political ideas and philosophy and history. This is what I spend my time doing now. Uh, but... I see people when I when I do venture out into the public places where folks gather for the reasons of socialization, you know, they go out to party or go on dates or whatever, and they will have their phones out and they'll be talking to each other and scrolling and texting and all this at the same time. And I uh I think that is I think we're we're missing out by doing that. I it's to me, it's it's uh, akin to you know back in the day when people were first getting excited about TVs, you know. Look, I I'm not gonna lie. I like to go home sometimes too and throw on the TV while I'm you know, eating dinner by myself, whatever. But whenever I'm with family, I just I think it's a better. I'm not passing judgment, but I think it's a better idea to sit and talk to each other and look at each other and not have a TV blaring. While, unless there's a spe- look, special sporting event, I get all that. But I mean, on a nightly basis, you want to be present with each other. You don't want to be. Um, you know, you don't want to be distracted from the human beings that are around you, because as much as Facebook and all these other platforms are, and Twitter, and I don't know how many of you are on Twitter. I know based on the the the, the data which I, I read about uh, consumers of conservative media, and if you listen on radio, by the way, there's a very high likelihood for those of you that are listening right now, very high likelihood that you uh, like dogs, and a very high likelihood that you love America. So there you go. Those, those, that's what the data tells me. Almost all of you like dogs and almost all of you love America. And in fact, I'd say all of you love America. Um, but back to uh, the other side of this, the social media side of it for a second or another side of it. 
Uh, many of you are on, a lot of you are on Facebook. Um, not that many of you probably are on Twitter, but some. And you can always tweet at me, by the way, at Buck Sexton. So on the one hand, I'm telling you to be present with your loved ones and friends. And I'm also telling you, though, but with me, because we don't get to hang out person to person, you know, social media is the way to go. So I'm going to keep that in mind. Um, so whether you're calling in from uh, California, Mississippi, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, all places we've in recent days had calls from, um, you know, social media allows you to to speak to the guy behind the mic whenever you want. Um, but it, it is important to to have limitations on this and not to allow it to become the the driving force in so many of our interactions or, or a distracting force or an additional force in so many of our interactions. I just have to laugh. I mean, sometimes I want to walk over to some of these, I was going to say some of these young guys, some of these young guys out there. Cause you know, once folks, once you get to be my age, once you get to be 35, you know, somebody who's like in their mid twenties, you know, they, they don't even, they don't even know what they don't know about life. Right. This is the stuff. That, and those of you who are listening here in your like fifties and sixties are like, Buck, you got a long way to go. And I, I know I do. Um, but I want to walk over to some of these guys. I'm like, you are on a date with this lovely young lady. I don't know if it's your first date or your 50th date. Put your phone away. <laughs> what are you doing with your phone? Put the phone away. Um, be present. That That's something that, uh, oh, it really stuck with me. I think that should, that's the motto. And not all the time. I, you know, like I said, social media is great. And it's, it's how I built a radio following, really. I started out doing radio and um, people asked me because I was one of the first folks around in the radio game at least at the blaze where i started out and then i started filling in for some of the big some of the big guys rush sean and glenn um well in the order of glenn rush and sean that was the first you know the first one i did was glenn and then rush and then i mean glenn and then sean and then rush uh but i was tweet i was live tweeting the show but i did that to um just know that there was an audience because i started out with such a small audience and by the way there's no better way to uh, learn this media game than to do it than to start out and, and have no audience no one's giving you a platform there's there's nothing right it's just hey i'm gonna do a show who wants to listen and because it was digital it was great because the first day maybe there were 17 people listening and then there was you know a uh, hundred people listening and then and then the, and you keep going and going and then all of a sudden you're like wow i've got like a whole sports arena worth of people listening to this show. And that was that was my experience at The Blaze relatively quickly. And I thought about it, I was like, wow, it's, it's, it's like, yeah, it'd be like if I was at a at a Knicks game and every single person in the Knicks game was listening to my radio show. Um, so that's the, the great part about, about the digital side of it. But in the early days, the only way that I even really knew that anybody was listening, because radio is different than other things. TV, sometimes you have a live audience, but even without a live audience, you have a TV crew around you and you kind of know that, you know, especially if you're in the news game, uh, they're going to be airports across the country where people are going to be walking. Oh, who's that guy? You know, he looks like uh, he looks like that guy from from Parks and Rec. <laughs> That's I get that a lot. Uh, what's that guy's name, by the way? You know what I'm talking about? No, I don't. I don't remember that guy's name. Whatever. He looks like me. Actually, I don't look like him. Take that. Uh, but Parks and Rec is a great show. I highly recommend it to all of you. But skip to the second season, and then you can go back and watch the first after you finish all the rest of it. Skip to the second season of Parks and Rec on Netflix. Don't bother, don't bother with the first one, and you will love Ron Swanson. Those of you listening, one of the greatest TV characters of all time. And occasionally I will make Ron Swanson references here on the show. But so, yeah, I started out doing social media. Um, and by the way, the story on Facebook is a very intense it's about violence and graphic violence and, 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 and illegal content and how they sift it out. And we'll get to that, I guess, after the break, because I, I went on a I went on a tangent here. But, you know, 
I think of you all as my friends, so I just speak to you like friends do, and that means sometimes I'm just going to talk about other things, even though I've got a rundown in front of me and I've got a team here and got to get to news stories. Um, but I started tweeting um, about the show, and uh, that was a way to get interactivity, and so people would say, hey, I like what you just did, it was, and that was a great way to... And then, of course, with Facebook, I could... Um, plug into that and plug into that. Now I sound like I have no idea I'm talking about. I could, I could log into that. <laughs> I could plug in uh, and people could comment on the show and comment on what was going on and I could get back in. I always love it too. It, it really, for a guy who comes from the, the CIA and was just another, just another government dude. Um, I, I'm, I'm always really, uh, I find it really fun. fun. Uh, funny is not the right. It's really fun. It's really nice. It brings a smile to my face whenever somebody sends me a message and then I respond and then they're surprised that I responded. It's like, yeah, it's it's me most of the time. We, we do have a team here that will sometimes respond, but most of the time it is me. And uh, if you have the time to reach out to me, I try to, to the absolute best of my ability, have the time to reach out and respond um, because you are all my uh, my brothers and sisters in freedom. All right. I, I have to go to a break here and take uh Take a minute or two to come back and talk about this this news story about Facebook, which has 3,000 new jobs that are opening up for monitoring Facebook for bad content. Um, we'll talk about that, but you got to stay with me through the break. I'll be right back. So Facebook is going to hire 3,000 people to... Uh, review objectionable content on the platform. Facebook's gotten some... Headlines recently because of what's been live streamed on Facebook Live. Um, there have been some really, truly horrific and terrible things. Un- unfortunately, when you have a platform with the reach and uh, user base that Facebook does, of course, there will be those who use it for the purposes of broadcasting uh, evil. Um, and it gives everybody, everybody has a platform. Um, it is... Uh, you know, there's really no way around that right now. If you give everybody a platform, you're giving a platform to people that sometimes will use it for very uh, nefarious and even uh, evil and deeply destructive purposes. There have been suicides, there have been murders, there have been uh, any number of really horrific things uh, put on Facebook. And so they're now trying to come up with uh, mechanisms to at least limit the exposure that these terrible things have. And uh, just uh, as an aside, you know, I, look, I, I, I love action movies and I, I like I like watching movies that have a fair amount of violence in them, although I will say that one distinction that not enough people make when they talk about this stuff is that there's a difference between violence and gore. And I, I do think that gory stuff, even when it's fake, even when we're talking about in the context of a movie, not in a Facebook Live video, um, but gory stuff can can stay with you. Uh, I, I there are movies I could even sit here and think of that I've seen that I, I didn't rec- I didn't realize what level of violence they would have, and and the the kind of depraved violence that you'd see. I mean, I, one that comes to mind. I really like the movie in terms of the style and the the pace. I, I like the movie The Girl with the with the Dragon Tattoo, um, but. There were some parts of that movie that, and then I only saw it a few years ago. Parts of the movie where I was like, mm, "I, I kind of wish I hadn't seen that." And uh, you know, also having worked in, because uh, I think that it can stay with you. I, I, it's you know, people make jokes sometimes about how they see something they didn't want to see. They're like, oh, I can never unsee that. But that's a, I think that's a real phenomenon sometimes that it can stay 
and and uh, I'm not saying it's you know not you can't get around it or you can't deal with it, but it, it can stay with you even in the realm of fiction. I'm talking about. I'm not talking about you know real PTSD from seeing horrific things either on the battlefield or in a terrible accident. I mean that that obviously stays with you. But I mean when you're watching things, even if it's fictionalized, I think it it can stay with you. And I, I've changed my mind on that. I used to think that I'll oh, come on, you know, you know it's you know that's just like. Uh, you know, some some food dye and you know hamburger meat or whatever. It's not real, and who cares? Um, but but sometimes they make it so realistic that you. I, I think that there is a, a rational basis to say that maybe we should um, we should at least be more. We should be cautious about what we allow ourselves to see. Like I said, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. I thought there were a couple of parts in that where I was like, whoa, I did not. And you know, I grew up watching Terminator and Commando and all these movies, but that is very different. You know, when some guys running around with an M16, shooting nameless faces, bad guys at, you know, 500 yards on full auto, never reloading. I mean, it's just, it's kind of like at some point, the, the guys in Star Wars, which there was a big thing about what the best Star Wars movies were today. I saw that on, on some of the social media, but and I won't get into that now. Um, but that's different than what you'll see in some films where they, you know, there are movies where they have the, the torch, they have torture, really explicit scenes of torture. I can't, I can't stomach that stuff. I can't. I stay away from it, and especially in, in recent years, I've just said, I, I don't want to see dis- really, truly disturbing content. I think everyone has to make their own decisions about you know, what they're up for and what they're not. I mean, some of the stuff in Game of Thrones, which is a show that I absolutely overall love, but some of that was a little rough, even for me. Some of that was, I almost bailed on, I will tell you, I bailed on, um, and some of you, know, I'm going to get some angry emails right now, I bailed on uh, Walking Dead. But that's in the realm of, after the first episode of the season, that's in the realm of fantasy or fiction or you know it's not real right but it can still i think it can still bother you if it's if it's graphic enough and and horrific enough with these facebook monitors uh they're looking at real stuff and they've already i think it was microsoft yeah microsoft had moderators sue the company because of the horrible brutal quote horrible brutality and quote indescribable sexual assaults that their monitors witnessed and gave, it gave them severe PTSD. Now, Microsoft is disputing this, and this is going out to, uh, you know, this is going to be fought out in the courts. Um, but a couple of things on this. One is that I, I, I think that uh, my sense of this has, my sense of what we should see and should not see in terms of entertainment has evolved. Um, and I, I do think that Facebook, it's a private entity. It's not a, a utility as people think it is, but it's not, uh, sh- should monitor content and should get rid of really terrible stuff. I, I do believe that. And, and they're doing it and they're trying to do it. They'll never do it fast enough though, because really terrible stuff will often get a lot of eyeballs and get shared. And, uh, it's just the way that it is. Um, you know, we're talking about some of the really great, you know, there've been suicides, live streaming. It's really terrible. I mean, hauntingly awful stuff. Um, but Facebook has a role in that. I just also can't help but think though, that the larger, the apparatus for censoring the really terrible stuff gets on Facebook, which I do agree with, um, the more room there will be and the more of a mechanism will be in place for censoring political stuff and censor and calling things hate speech that aren't hate speech. They're just policy disputes that upset people. Keep in mind, on the one hand, I come into this uh, studio and I talked to you here in the Freedom Hut about all these college campuses and these professors and these students who make arguments that speech that they don't like is violence. 
Well, in a culture that increasingly is embracing a speech equals violence formulation, our largest social media platform that is determining a lot of the content, including news and information content we see on a day-to-day basis, that is growing more and more robust on its censorship uh, side, will also be in a position to, without us even noticing... Uh, remove speech under the guise of protecting us from speech that equals violence. And this could really change the conversation in dramatic but gradual and very hard to detect ways. We should really all just be aware of it. We should be aware of it. All right. Uh, Hour three coming up, team. Stay with me. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. All right, team, we've got the healthcare expert extraordinaire on the phone, Ovik Roy. He is the president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, Forbes opinion editor and author of of Transcending Obamacare and How Medicaid Fails the Poor. Ovik, great to have you, sir. Hey, Buck. How's it going? Good, good. Thanks for uh, coming to hang out in the hut. Uh, so, le- we've talked a lot about healthcare already in the show, but you you are somebody who dives very deep into this stuff and knows it backwards and forwards. Can you walk me through a little bit, um, before I ask you just for the general winners and losers, pre-existing conditions got a ton of attention this week. What's the reality of what this... House bill does for pre-existing conditions, and more generally, what's been happening with pre-existing conditions under Obamacare? I mean, how, how big of an issue is this? Yeah. So, first of all, the pre-existing conditions problem is totally overrated as a problem uh, in terms of a policy problem. Yes, it's a significant problem for the people who have pre-existing condition who can't can't afford health insurance, but that turns out to be in terms of people denied coverage, specifically who are denied coverage who insurers won't even offer coverage to, which is the problem Obamacare keeps talking about. The Democrats keep talking about saying that they they solved with Obamacare. That problem affects a couple hundred thousand people in America at most. So it's, it's a, pro- a significant problem for those individuals, and we should try to solve that problem for those individuals. But you didn't need to take over or upend the entire health care system to solve that problem. And isn't it fair to say, Ovik, that that was really the, the primary emotional mechanism that was used to pass Obamacare or that was used to sell Obamacare and give it political cover in the first place, pre-existing conditions, I think, was top of the list. Absolutely. And, and that's, what, that's what's so interesting. It, you know, it, it, it was at the top of the list because it pulled so well. Oh, yeah, we don't want people with pre-existing conditions not to be able to have an offer of health insurance. But Obamacare goes way beyond that. It says healthy people have to have double or triple the premiums so that some sick people can get slightly lower premiums, which, in fact, they rarely do. It says that we're going to subsidize coverage for people in a way that basically massively uh, drives up taxes and, and, and hammers economic growth. So it increases premiums. It raises taxes. It suppresses the economy. It does help some people afford health coverage. But at the end of the day, uh, there are better ways to achieve what Obamacare's stated goals were uh, if you use free markets rather than the government. And what is the difference between what the House bill, let's let's assume that it does become a law, which I think is unlikely as it stands, but let's just assume that it went forward. What would be the difference in how pre-existing conditions would be handled under the American Health Care Act versus pre-existing conditions under Obamacare? 
In terms of being uh, offered coverage, oh. it'd be exactly the same. Okay. So uh, the this bill, the American Health Care Act, does not change uh, Obamacare's requirement that every insurer has to offer you coverage, offer you some form of coverage, regardless of your existing health status. So that's that's exactly the same as it was before. Now there are differences between the Republican bill and Obamacare in how it provides financial assistance to people who have pre-existing conditions. So if you imagine, if you buy auto insurance after you've crashed your car, your premiums are going to be higher. If you buy homeowner's insurance after you've burned down your house or someone else has burned down your house, uh, your premiums are going to be higher. Same thing with health insurance. If, if your health insurance, if, you, if you're already sick and you're going to consume more health care, well, obviously your premiums are going to be higher because you're consuming more health care. That's how it would work in a normal free market. Well, Obamacare has a rule saying, no, uh, we're going to actually force insurers to charge healthy and sick people the same. But what does that do? It doubles the premiums of healthy people. And that's why so many people's premiums have gone up under Obamacare. So Republicans have a different approach. Instead of forcing people to pay these gigantic premium hikes to cover sick uninsured people, it says, look, let's all as a country, all 300 million of us who pay taxes are the ones who do pay taxes. Let's get together and say, you know what, we're going to provide a pool of money for those hard luck cases of people who you know, they lost their job, they're throwing off their insurance, can't get insurance, can't afford insurance in the open market. We're going to provide some assistance through this thing called the high-risk pool that helps them. And that's actually a much better approach than what Obamacare does. Does the high-risk pool, or is it likely to, to have enough funding? I, mean, I, could, I, I always assume, Ovik, that yeah. this will be more expensive than the government says it will be, but do you think it will be, roughly speaking, enough? That's always a, a, an appropriate assumption, Buck, as you know. Uh, I, I think it will be enough, but I, I think a bigger problem here with this bill is we've spent all this time, all this yakking about pre-existing conditions. And again, I don't want to minimize how serious of a problem it is for the people who really experience it. It is a serious problem. But the much bigger problem is that for 70 years, the federal government has been doing stupid things to the health insurance market and has made health insurance unaffordable for tens of millions of people, not because they have a pre-existing condition, but because they don't make enough money to afford the crazy premiums that people are charging because the government basically forces them to. That's the problem we have to solve. We have to solve the problem of the government messing up the insurance market so health insurance is unaffordable for tens of millions of people, whether they're healthy or sick, instead of just focusing on the people who are sick. And we aren't doing that, at least not enough, in this bill because of all the politics around pre-existing conditions. That's the thing that the Senate, I think, will really have to work on. Ovik Roy is with us. He's the president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. Ovik, the New York Times had a piece up. Who wins and who loses in the latest GOP health care bill? What's your assessment of that? Who wins, who loses? In terms of politics or in terms of people in the country? I'm sorry, I, I meant in terms of uh, people, and health, uh, people who are getting health care. Yeah, uh, well... <laughs> Uh, taxpayers win because this bill has uh, something like you know seven hundred billion dollars over ten years of tax cuts. So that's uh, those guys are winners, and that's a predominantly upper income taxpayers. We should we should know. Um, it's uh, it's a, it's also a winner for people who are paying high premiums right now, particularly who aren't really eligible for the Obamacare subsidies. They're going to see slightly lower premiums over time under this bill. Um, there are going to be some losers though. Uh, people who are are, are uh, making money, let's say, just above the poverty line, ten, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars a year, that kind of income. If you're, if they're relatively old, if they're in their fifties or their sixties, too young for Medicare, but too wealthy for Medicaid. Uh, if they're in that kind of gap, that bucket, 
they're going to pay a lot higher premiums than people do today. And that's a problem that's fixable. This bill could cover those people, provide them a little bit more financial assistance, reduce financial assistance to other people who don't need the help as much, and get to a more balanced place. But uh, the House bill didn't do that. So if you're in the individual market, what is the income range, roughly speaking, that we're talking about where people are, you're making too much for Medicaid, but uh, you're also maybe not going to be getting as much financial assistance from the government now to buy premiums on the individual market? I mean, is it, what, what's, the, what's the range? Yeah. So it varies depending on the size of your household. Uh, the federal poverty level is what this is all anchored to. And the federal poverty level for uh, a family of one, a childless adult, is to about 12000 bucks a year. Uh, the federal poverty level for a family of four is about 25000 bucks a year. So uh, we're talking about uh, families or households that are, uh, and I don't want to throw too many numbers at you, uh, too many numbers at you, Buck, but it's basically if you're within one times the poverty level or say two to three times the poverty level, if you're making, let's say, 12000 to 36000 bucks as an individual or twenty five to seventy five thousand bucks a family for these are the people who are going to see a lot less financial assistance out of this bill and for people who are really interested in the details on this, they can go to the website of our think tank, the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunities, freeop.org, f r e o p p dot o r g and there's a lot of charts and numbers in there uh, that describe all this stuff. So the Senate might take up their own version of this bill. That's what at least has been reported today. Uh, so it'll be based on, mm-hmm. I, I would assume, similar architecture to what the House has passed. But if the Senate won't pass what the House has passed and they do a different version of it, um, they can change some things, right? They'll just call it something else. They'll have a new an, another bill. If you were able to change this, Ovik, or if you were part of uh, the, the group that would get together later on and try to and try to figure out how to make these uh, disparate bills one, what would you say? I mean, what, what, what should be different here? If you're in the conference committee, I mean, what, what would you tell them they should change? Yeah. So actually at, uh, at freeop.org, the same website I was talking about just a minute ago, there's an article entitled how to make Ryan care premiums affordable for the near elderly. Uh, and that it, it basically involves a very simple tweak that's been proposed by an Arkansas congressman named Bruce Westerman. What he proposed is very simple that you take this provision in the existing bill, Section 202, actually, of the existing bill, that involves a transitional schedule of tax credits for the years 2018-2019. If you just continue that schedule forward from 2020 onward, instead of going to the flat tax credit that Ryan Care uh, uh, proposes instead, if you just keep the, the way the tax credits work in 2018-2019 and just keep that going forward, you would basically completely solve this problem. So a very simple legislative tweak would actually address uh, most of the problems in this bill. And can you buy, no, you, you can't yet buy insurance across state lines based on the House bill, right? Yeah, and there's a reason for that, which is that if you use the reconciliation process, that, that so you can have 50 votes in the Senate instead of 60, um, that process is very technically complicated. Uh, and the way the reconciliation bills work is you give these things called reconciliation instruction to different committees in the Senate that then have to do certain things. And uh, things around buying insurance across state lines, generally speaking, are the province of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And unfortunately, this bill didn't contain any instructions for the Senate Judiciary Committee, so they're kind of stuck. But in theory, what you could do, if you deregulate the insurance market enough, you can actually... 
uh, help people buy insurance across state lines through some other measures. So that's one thing I hope the Senate can do a little more work on. Uh, but they are wrestling with that technical problem of how the reconciliation instructions were developed for this bill. What grade would you give the House bill that passed today? You know, I, the, the article I'm writing up for Forbes as we speak that's going to go on uh, online tonight about this bill is, is uses grades. And I give, uh, I give the bill an A-plus for what it does to address Obamacare's regulations. I give it a, uh, a C-plus. Uh, or maybe it's a C minus, I can't remember, for what it does in the tax credits. I think the tax credits are messed up, this unnecessary uh, thing about throwing people off their health insurance if they're in the working poor. And I'll give them a B to B minus for the Medicaid piece. And the reason why I give them a B to B minus for the Medicaid piece, actually, I could give them an A for the Medicaid piece. The Medicaid piece is actually the most important part of this bill. It's 10 times as important as welfare reform. But they've unnecessarily jeopardized the Medicaid reforms in this bill by the structure of the tax credits. So if they fix the tax credits, that Bruce Westerman amendment I was talking about that revolves around Section 202 of this bill, that Western amendment fixes this bill, makes it easier to do robust Medicaid reform, covers more people at a lower cost, and actually gives you a more free market health care system than we had before, Obamacare. So I think that's, that's really what the opportunity is, and we'll just have to see if the Senate gets there. Ovik Roy is president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. He's a Forbes opinion editor. Look for his uh, piece coming up tonight on Forbes.com. Uh, Ovik, thank you so much, man. We always appreciate it when you come and hang out. Hey, appreciate it, Buck. Uh, team, we are going to hit a break, and we'll be back right after. President Trump has announced his first foreign visit as the president of the United States. Tolerance is the cornerstone of peace, and that is why I am proud to make a major and historic announcement this morning and to share with you that my first foreign trip as President of the United States will be to Saudi Arabia, then Israel, and then to a place that my cardinals love very much, Rome. So Trump is going to be stopping in Israel and Saudi Arabia and Rome, uh, he will be reaching out to various uh, Muslim constituencies, Muslim allies over the course of the trip. Um, he is also doing what previous presidents before Obama had done, which is to make sure that there is a stop on this first presidential foreign uh, foreign visit. There's a stop in a in the Jewish state as well as in. Muslim countries in the neighborhood for reasons that are, well, pretty clear to anybody who pays attention to the news or or knows the history of the region at all, likes to give some uh, attention as the leader of the free world to um, both sides in that uh, ongoing relationship between uh, Arabs and uh, Israelis. So he's, uh, by the way, Obama did not do that in his uh, first summer, his first year in office. Uh, he went, his first trip uh, involved the address to Egypt, If you, or, or the address in Egypt, I mean, to the Muslim world, um, which I'm sure many of you will recall. And it was part of what we later came to know as the, either the apology tour or the bowing tour, depending on which photo and which day in uh, specifically we're referencing. But there was such a, a surge, I remember it, of, oh, Obama's going 
to make the world like us more and the world will be such a better place because Obama will like America more than it has. I'm sorry. Um, uh, the world will like America more than it has in the past because Obama is the president. Um, that didn't seem to really have any effect whatsoever. In fact, if you look at hot spots around the world, and this is a contention that I often made to the chagrin of both viewers and anchors over at CNN during my my years there, my two years there. Uh, if you look at hotspots, places where there is violent conflict, where U.S. interests are at stake or where there is an active U.S. hand in the conflict, whether we're supporting uh, indigenous forces or we have our own troops on the ground fighting, in each place where you would have been able to look on a map and say, well, this is a hot spot. There's bad stuff going on here. we got to pay attention to this. Over the course of Obama's eight years in office, it got worse. Uh, whether we're looking at Iraq or Syria or Afghanistan or Libya or just go down the go down the list, there was no place uh, Yemen. There was no place that Obama could look at, you know, look at and say, um, "This is a foreign policy success for us." In fact, that's why the Iran deal was so important to the administration because they viewed that as canceling out all the other chaos and. Uh, violence and destabilization. Although I, I am some that occurred in the Middle East. I'm somebody who likes to point out just because I'm because I'm keeping it real uh, that the Middle East is not a stable place. So when we talk about destabilization, it's always a question of degree. Uh, but anyway, the uh, the Jewish state, Israel, noticed that Obama did not stop there on his first trip and went to Egypt, and that was the beginning of. Uh, what would continue to be a uh, contentious relationship between the Obama administration and and Israel and and Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel, which we're all quite aware of. Uh, But Trump going to Saudi Arabia is interesting. Saudi Arabia is uh, an ally and a problem at the same time. And it is an allied government, but a problematic uh, Wahhabi ideology. Uh, This is perhaps a conversation we should have in, in more depth another time, and I'm happy to do so. This is right in the wheelhouse of what I studied and, and worked on for many years, uh, radicalization, terrorism, uh, and the various ideolo- the various strains of Islam and, uh, and Islamic ideology that are the fuel for that radicalization. Uh, Wahhabism is a term that we use for the brand of Islam in Saudi Arabia, but they don't particularly uh, like that. They being, well, it's it's fallen out of favor as a term because it, ref- it refers specifically to a preacher, uh, I believe in about the 18th century on the Saudi peninsula, Ibn, Ibn Abdul Wahhab. And so Wahhabism almost makes it sound like they're, they are worshiping this, uh, this preacher, this fundamentalist preacher, Wahhab. Um, and that's not obviously what they're doing, uh, but he is very tied in with the tribes and the power structure there and the, the fighting. And uh, I'm doing about a what, what would be an hour long. We could do much more time on, on Ibn Abdul Wahhab, uh, but that'll be another day. Um, Salafism is a more broad spectrum term that people tend to use for Islamic, uh, well, hardliners. Salafs are the founding fathers of Islam. They are the forefathers of Islam. Uh, the first caliphs, remember the the, the uh, caliphate is led by a caliph, or a, uh, and the 
caliph in the early days of Islam. Well, of course, you had Muhammad and then the first prophets, or the first, not prophets, the first uh, leaders after him. Uh, they were leaders of a caliphate. Um, but the Saudis are necessary for us to counterbalance Iran and Iranian interests. Iran's in the midst of a major military buildup. Uh, and so we, we work with the Saudis. The government is friendly to U.S. interests and is willing to, uh, I, I would think, be useful going forward against the Iranians. But they're also the greatest exporters still uh, of Salafist Islam, which causes problems for us from Boston to Baghdad to Bangladesh. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are gold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Today's a national day of prayer, and President Trump took it as an opportunity to unveil another executive order, this time about religious freedom. We remember this eternal truth freedom is not a gift from government freedom is a gift from God that is why I am signing today an executive order to defend the freedom of religion and speech in America the freedoms that we've wanted the freedoms that you fought for so long so you're now in a position where you can say what you want to say. And I know you'll only say good, and you'll say what's in your heart. This executive order directs the IRS not to unfairly target churches and religious organizations for political speech. No one should be censoring sermons or targeting pastors. At the heart of all this is the Johnson Amendment, which was uh, named for then-Senator Lyndon Johnson of Texas. The Johnson Amendment says that if you're a 501c3, you cannot engage in political activity lest you lose your tax-exempt status. So what does this executive order today mean? Got somebody who can give us all the answers. Hans von Spakovsky's the line, everybody. He's senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation, former FEC commissioner and a DOJ Lawyer, also author of the book, Obama's Enforcer, Eric Holder's Justice Department. Hans, good to have you, sir. Good. Well, thanks for having me. All right. So this EO comes out today. What's what's the so what? Does it do anything? Well, no, not. Uh-oh. Hans. It's like, look, it's, it's, it's actually pretty weak. I mean, look, it, it, it talks about the importance of religious liberty, and, and then it says, well, we're going to honor and enforce existing laws. Well, that's what we would expect the federal government to do. And uh, it does say that, that the Treasury should be lenient in enforcement of the Johnson Amendment. You know, that's, that's the amendment that uh, Lyndon Johnson got passed to re- try to restrict the activities of churches and other nonprofits because he was mad during his election process that some of the churches were saying that Johnson wouldn't be a good guy. Uh, in office. But what really needs to happen is the Johnson Amendment uh, needs to be repealed by Congress. And I, look, it's, it's got good sentiments behind it, but uh, I, I don't think it really does uh, that much uh, different than what's already going on. I mean, I mean give you another example, Buck. Uh, it, it says that um, 
he directs uh, HHS, you know, Health and Human Services, to um, consider amending the regulations over people who object to the contraception mandate in, in Obamacare. But they were already told to do that by the U.S. Supreme Court in the Little Sisters of the Poor case. So there, there's, there's nothing really substantive or significant in, in the order. Today. And correct me if I'm wrong, Hans, but, but the Johnson Amendment, as it stands now, for enforcing the law, the Johnson Amendment, that would mean that churches that do political activity could have their 501c3 status revoked, that, that they could be, there could be IRS penalties. Um, but aren't they pretty lenient on that already? I mean, isn't that – how often do they actually use the Johnson Amendment to go after a church? Well, they, they don't. I mean, you and I both know, uh, because it's been uh, plainly obvious for years, that, for example, um, you know, very, very black churches in the South and elsewhere – uh, they engage in a lot of political, activi- political activity before federal elections. They often give sermons telling people who they should vote for, and then they organize, you know, busing their uh, members to uh, to the polls. And no one's ever really said very much about that. Yeah, I'm going to guess that that the D- Department of Justice, as a general rule, d- does not strip the tax exempt status away from historically black churches. I'm, I'm guessing that doesn't happen in, in recent years. No, they they don't. And that's been, of course, the most active uh, political activity of, of nonprofits. Instead, as you know, instead of going after that, you know, what did the Obama uh, 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 IRS do? No, they went after uh, Tea Party nonprofits um, for coming out and saying, well, they thought that policies like Obamacare were bad, which isn't really political activity. That's grassroots activity about an issue. We're speaking to Hans von Spakovsky of the Heritage Foundation. Uh, Hans, you said the Johnson Amendment should be repealed. So then what would that mean? And do you think there should be a replacement that has more clarity or should it just be repealed? And that's it. No, I think it should repeal. I I think we should go back to the situation we had uh, before that. You know, people say, oh, well, then um, they're going to get engage in political activity, and and yet they're you know they're not taxed. But look, purely political organizations, you know, five twenty seven organizations, political committees, they're not taxed either. So why in the world are we restricting uh, nonprofits like churches from, for example, having their ministers say, look, uh, you know, I think particular candidates are are not good and and. Uh, I, I think people should consider that uh, when they go into the polls. I, I really don't see a problem. With yeah, that. What, what's the – so I'm th- sitting here thinking, okay, so what is the counter-argument? What's the big – why not let – first of all, it's already happening, as we discussed, and it's happening in a lot of churches, um, but uh, right. why, why not – what's the counter-argument to that? Well, the counter-argument is people saying wrongly that, well, then you're going to be subsidizing political activity. But like I said – you know, churches, nonprofits, those aren't profit-making uh, institutions. You know, they're nonprofits. Well, how do they exist? They exist on the contributions from their members. Well, the contributions from the members, those are already taxed. You know, all their members uh, uh, have to pay income taxes on the money they earn. If they take some of that money and contribute it to a membership organization, why should it be taxed 
again? Uh, a, a very worthy question, Hans, for one for which I, I don't have a ready answer. It sounds to me like we should get rid of the Johnson. Anything Lyndon Johnson, Lyndon Johnson's name on it should probably get a second look. Uh, <laughs> but let's go to more area. What are areas right now, if I could uh, get you in the Oval Office with uh, with President Trump and, and some of his top advisors, and they're like, all right, Hans, where do we where do we need to fight the religious liberty fight? I mean, what are the places where there should be action taken uh, either by the White House or more likely perhaps by the the Congress to give us the level of religious liberty that we should have? Well, I, I, I'll give a very specific example. Look, right now there are several cases uh, pending before the U.S. Supreme Court. These are cases in which parties have asked, petitioned the Supreme Court to review them. There are cases involving photographers, bakers, people who have been fined and driven out of business by state uh, human rights commissions because uh, uh, they were trying to force them to participate in, in gay marriages. And those are, those are cases where the U.S. Justice Department ought to go in and support the requests for those cases to be re- reviewed because the lower court decisions in those cases are straight out-and-out blatant violations of the religious liberties of Americans under the First Amendment. So how, how would that mechanism work? If we have a an evangelical cake baker in Colorado who's been fined $30,000 for refusing to bake a cake for a, a gay wedding ceremony, what, could, what, what can the federal government do as a form of redress or at least to address what's going on? Well, what's going on is that those, those groups are trying to get the Supreme Court to accept for review the lower court decisions which found against them. What ought to happen is the Justice Department itself should file a brief with the Supreme Court urging the court to take the case and overturn the lower courts. The Supreme Court takes very seriously when the Justice Department comes in and says, you ought to take the case. And that's really important because literally thousands of cases get filed with the Supreme Court asking them to take up an appeal, yet the court only takes a little over 80 cases a year. Are there any major religious liberty cases? I haven't looked at the Supreme Court docket recently. Are there any major religious liberty cases that are expected to be taken up in the next uh, the next session? Well, uh, or this session, so far, I mean. Sorry. So no, so no, uh, there aren't. All, all we're waiting for at the moment is: Will they accept for review these cases that I'm talking about? Now, the, the one case that we are waiting for a decision on is the Trinity Lutheran case um, out of Missouri. That was a case that was argued just two weeks ago before the court. That's, that's a case where uh, Missouri had a program providing um, recycled tires to any school in the state uh, to, to redo their playgrounds, to make them safer for kids. Uh, they refused. <laughs> they refused to uh, allow a church playground, a church school with a playground, to apply for that solely because they were a church. Otherwise, they met all the qualifications of the program. The lower court said that was okay. That's now before the Supreme Court, and uh, I think you're actually going to get a decision from the court saying you can't do that any more than you can withhold fire and police protection 
from a church just because they're a church. Yeah, what was the, the, the justification there was that uh, there's a merger of, of church and state if, if some old tires keep kids from, from knocking their heads on the cement? That's exactly it. And and as stupid as that sounds, yes, that was the argument that Missouri made. Wow. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye out for that one. Hans von Spakovsky, everybody, senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation, author of Obama's Enforcer, Eric Holder's Justice Department. Hans, always a pleasure, sir. Thanks for having me. Team, hitting a break here, and then we're going to finish up strong. Be right back. Just a follow-up to a discussion before about the first foreign travel of um, of President Trump. Uh, he has... Sorry, I had it right here. Give me one second. I'm pulling it up. President Trump uh, he has yet to travel internationally. Sorry, there we go. Uh, but Obama, Clinton, and Bush uh, had each visited at least one country at this point Um in their presidencies. Uh, so, but on the other hand, Trump has traveled to 11 states, I think it's, yes, visiting 11 states and taking office. Obama visited nine countries uh, during his first 100 days, attempting to, quote, reset U.S. policy in the Middle East and elsewhere after many years of war in Iraq and Afghanistan. So, um, that's the... Uh, that's the update there. Now on to uh, on to flights, um, and what goes on with flights these days. The United Airlines situation uh, was something that we all—I think we talked about it here on the show—but we all saw it, right? We all saw that. It was like, whoa! United brought out the brought out the stormtroopers and uh, and pulled that guy out of his seat, and you've seen all that. That that of course has uh, ramifications. People now recognize that when they are uh, now confronted by a perhaps surly airline employee, they can stand their ground and know that someone's going to pull out a video or, you know, pull out a cell phone and take a video of this. And the we're going to just grab you and manhandle you and drag you through the aisle situation. Not very likely. But that also means that now you get into some of the more intricate back and forth over who's right, who's wrong on the airline, uh, or who's right and who's wrong on a flight with the airlines. Um, and you've got this family from California, Brian Shear, with his wife and two children. They're on a Delta Airlines flight. Uh-oh, Delta Airlines. And um, th- here's the situation. They bought two tickets for his two children, and one of the children went on an earlier flight. I guess he's uh, you know of age to travel on his own. And so they still he still paid for two seats. He's got one kid. And they want to take the smallest child and put him uh, in a uh, child seat in one of these uh, airline seats. And the airline is saying, oh, no, your person whose name is on that ticket is not here. So we want to use that empty seat for, of course, as the airlines do, an overbooked passenger. And that leads to the following exchange. Their policy is if you're not going to abide, you're going to have to be off the plane. You have to be Well, oh, then, then they can remove me off the plane. You and your whole family? So then yeah, that's fine. It's going to be a federal offense, and then you and your wife will be in jail, and your kids will be in jail. Okay, that's. Oh, okay. So my kid, wait, so my wife, oh, we're going to be in jail, and my kids are going to be what? It's a federal offense if you don't. 
I bought that seat. Not, I, I understand it's from Mesa. Right. Right. I I paid. For, I got him a ticket on another flight so that my son would have a seat. And you're saying, and you're saying, you're just gonna, you're gonna give that away to someone else. That when I paid for that seat, that's not right. Him being, no, they're not. We we're pulling him up right now. With him being too, he cannot sit in the car seat. He needs. That's the purpose of the infant announce. He has to sit in your, in your arms the whole time. He can, like technically he couldn't even be on a seat. He rode, he rode on a car seat the whole way out here on, this, on a Delta flight. And, that, and that's unfortunate. Unfortunately, I, I don't know what to tell you. I'm just trying to do the best I can now. The but situation the is this plane is, is not going to move until we get you guys up. And that's fine. We can all sit here all night if that's what you guys want to do. That, okay, but that's wrong. I, and I, I get paid, that it's wrong. I, paid, I really do. I paid for that seat. I understand. And the person left, and then now you don't want anyone there. So you want another passenger not to sit there the whole flight. I get that. I paid for the seat. I, and I, <laughs> you know, get out the aviation lawyer. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of a lot of moving pieces on this one. So he paid for the seat, but they're telling him that there's a policy, and, and I don't know that you can't have a, a child of a certain age sitting in a seat, even in you know even in this. I, I don't I don't know, but to, of course, to a normal person, I think you figure you pay for the seat, you're there, it's your seat, you paid money for it, right? That's like your real estate. To the airlines, though, they're always like, no, there's all these there's all these other rules that you have to deal with. There's all these other uh, considerations that come into play. Um, so, you know, I think this guy realizes, and it's an unfortunate circumstance. They got pulled off the flight. Uh, Delta has apologized and said that they're refunding their money and also providing quote, additional compensation. I don't think it's like Mr. Dow compensation. Uh, but because I mean, that guy, that guy's going to be lighting his cigars with hundred dollar bills for the foreseeable future, my friends. Um, but I'm sure that they, they made this problem because they don't want the PR nightmare. They don't want to see like a 5% stock drop tomorrow because they wanted this one seat for this one overbooked passenger and they got into this whole thing. Um, so yeah, this is now the, the situation between passengers and airlines. And I got to say, we can expect this going forward where passengers know that all they need is to videotape this and the strong arm tactics of the airlines, not, not quite as strong anymore. Um, in this case, it's a little more, I'm a little more like, well, I mean, you know, is it really a rule about the child seat and the, uh, you know, or can you really, like if somebody bought five empty, five seats on a plane and they just want to keep them empty and there are five people that need a flight home, does the airline have the, based on the carriage of, or the contract, car, carriage of contract or whatever it's called, the airline thing that tells you your rights, whatever that, see, I'm not an, not an aviation lawyer, clearly. Uh, can they, do they have the legal right under the contract that you sign when you buy the tickets to give those seats away? I, it's uh, it's a little complicated, but the real problem here is the moment she says you and your children are going to jail, I think everyone's like, whoa, slow down, lady. Like, no one needs to be sending a w- husband, wife, and their two small children to prison over an airline seat. So, another one of these situations. Um, go to uh, iTunes, type in Buck Sexton with America Now, click subscribe, please, and uh, tell a friend or two about the show when you're talking about, you know, your day tomorrow, hanging out with people, and just be like, hey, check out this guy, Buck Sexton. Listen to him on the iHeart app if he's not available on radio in your area. We're going to have a fun show tomorrow. Cinco de Mayo. Shields high, everyone.